The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. So turn again to Exodus and chapter 12. We'll complete the sermon text for tonight. It's all of chapter 11 and chapter 12 up until verse 32. If you think that's a large section of text, you're right, it is. The good news is next Sunday evening, Pastor Rockin will come back to chapter 12 and treat the Passover on its own. So we're flying fairly over the text tonight, focusing on the plague. Well, let's give our attention then to God's word, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the, the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone, anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on these days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever, in the first month. From the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, 
no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Amen. Thanks be to our God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, how we need you, both in speech and in hearing. May our worship of you now be accompanied and filled with the power of the Spirit. We confess readily and freely, without you we can do nothing. So minister in us, Lord God, that we might see more of your holiness and righteousness, your justice against the wicked, and your grace and mercy to the undeserving. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here this night to hear ultimately of Christ our Lord and Savior. We plead with you, Lord, encourage our hearts, each one of us, as we need it. Strengthen us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pharaoh has steadfastly ignored all of God's warnings and commands to let his people go. And now he's faced with the ultimate plague, the death of the firstborn throughout all the land 
of Egypt. And here, friends, quite simply, we witness God's full hatred and his anger towards unrepentant sin. But his love and his mercy and his deliverance of his people. The deliverance of his people in accordance with his covenant purposes and his promise to the fathers. The people of Israel are passed over in the moment of extreme judgment. God passes over them but brings death upon the Egyptians. Here we see God's mercy, not just to Israel, but as a picture of what it is like for us, for all sinners, to find grace and mercy in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's anger against sin, God's deliverance, gracious deliverance of sinners. In chapter 11, we're seeing death promised. God promises to bring a plague of death upon the Egyptians. Chapter 12, in verses 1 to 28, we see deliverance declared. And then finally, in chapter 12, verse 29, we see death enacted. Death promised, deliverance declared, and death enacted. Death promised first of all death promised in chapter 11 the chronology of chapter 11 is a little bit unusual it's a little bit unclear at the end of chapter 10 verse 29 we have Moses saying you will never see my face again and we seem to think that at that point Moses departs that's not the case chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 are really Moses before Pharaoh but God speaking directly to Moses And then Moses, verse 4, declares to Pharaoh what God has said to him. So really, chapter 11, verse 9, when Moses goes out, that's the last time that Pharaoh sees Moses' face. And God reveals to Moses in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 a plague of disastrous proportions, quite unlike the nine plagues that have happened prior to this. This plague is going to be different. We're not given an insight into what it is in the first two verses. We simply have to read, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And God tells Moses that that plague will be so severe it will produce a temporary softening on the part of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh will let them go as a result of it. And God tells them, That after that, after they leave, they are to ask of the Egyptians whatever they want. And they're going to be given whatever they want. This is known as the plundering of the Egyptians. God says to them there in verse 2, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. That's fulfilled in chapter 12, verse 35. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, 
So they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The wealth of Egypt was stripped. That which belonged to God by right, he told the children of Israel, ask and you shall receive. Think on that. They plundered the Egyptians. They go through the Red Sea into the promised land where they make the tabernacle. The gold that they took with them goes into the making of the house of God. And that first section, the first three verses, closes with quite a staggering statement about Moses himself. Consider Moses, formerly the prince of Egypt, then on his own exile or exodus, lowly as a shepherd in Midian, called to go back to Egypt by God, fearing that he couldn't do the job. Who, who am I to speak to Moses, to, to Pharaoh? And we read this, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Friends, the rise of Moses to great power was not by the efforts of man. It was by the power of God. This is one who spoke with the speech given to him by the Holy Spirit. Moses in his speech is the prophet of God. Moses in his leadership is the king of God. Moses in his intercession between the people and God is the priest of God. Moses in his threefold office. And so as the great prophet, priest, and king, verse 4, Moses repeats what the Lord had told him. He repeats to Pharaoh and presumably in the hearing of all his court, and he says this. And we're told now about the plague that it wasn't revealed to us there in verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die the death of the firstborn the lord would go out into egypt and kill all the firstborn of egypt from pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl to the firstborn of one in the dungeon even to the firstborn of animals and the text tells us as a consequence there will be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh in his court that night would be plagued. Egypt would be plagued, friends, with widespread death. And because of the devastation of this plague, not only will Pharaoh soften temporarily, but we read verse 8, all the servants of Pharaoh shall come down to me, Moses, and bow down to me and say, get out, you and your people. They'll be in abject fear of Moses. And it's interesting there in verse 8, we're given an insight into Moses' reaction to Pharaoh's stubbornness. It says, he went out from Pharaoh in a hot anger. Because he knew that Pharaoh, after the plague had hit, would soften. Not before. 
and that Pharaoh's stubbornness and rebellion would bring ruin on his people. Every house, we're told, suffered death that night. He went out in a hot anger. Notice that language, though, he went out. He went out. That's the language used throughout this section of Exodus for the very act of Exodus. Moses would make his final exodus before Pharaoh at this point. But it's not just Moses making an exodus in this passage. Go back to uh, verse 4. So Moses says, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out. I will exodus, says the Lord, in the midst of Egypt. It's the very language of exodus. Not just Moses, the people, but God, as it were, making an exodus. What does it mean? One writer says this, because Pharaoh will not let God's people go out of Egypt. God will go out into Egypt. As it were, God will come down from his throne himself to bring judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Friends, we're beginning to see a glimpse of the wrath of God against unrighteousness. That the Lord himself is personally going to come down from heaven. I will go out, says the Lord. He will come out and he will enact judgment upon the wickedness of Egypt. Upon all the false gods of Egypt the false deities, and the stubborn rebellion of Pharaoh. But also we see a matter of distinction. Not just judgment is in this picture. Deliverance. A distinction between two peoples. The Egyptians and the Israelites. How is that distinction to be made in this text? We'll be going to chapter 12 in a moment. But it's the distinction in the idea of expiation. The theological term expiation, that's how the distinction between the two peoples will be made. By atonement, by the payment of a price and the removal of guilt upon one of these people groups. God is going to provide a mechanism by which one people shall escape judgment and by that same mechanism the other people group will receive judgment. One people, Israel, shall be redeemed. The other people shall be destroyed. We need to understand, friends, in this expiation moment, there is nothing inherent about the Israelites as a people that made them worthy of this deliverance. There's nothing inherent in them, not their qualities they possessed, or the potential that they surely had, because we know how that ends, don't we? With kings and chronicles and so on, and exile, surely not their potential to respond to God. No, Israel was no better than the Egyptians in themselves. If they were, they wouldn't need some external sign to make a differentiation between them. If they were better internally, that internal difference would have been enough for God. 
but they needed something external to themselves, a Passover lamb, a sacrifice, and blood spread on the door as a sign for them and the destroyer that they had been passed by in judgment. Nothing about us, God's people, nothing about us individually and inherently makes us worthy of salvation. Yes, the external reality of Passover and the blood on the doorpost tells us that salvation and mercy and grace are all of the Lord, not of ourselves. Yes, death is promised to the Egyptians, but deliverance is declared For the Israelites, chapter 12, our second consideration, deliverance is declared. Again, Pastor Rockins is going to spend the entire sermon next week talking about Passover and probably the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I want to be very brief in my consideration of Passover tonight. Passover is the mechanism, the expiation, the atonement, which provides relief and deliverance for the people of God. But let's look at three principles. There's many, many more. Three principles concerning Passover which are important for us tonight. The first is there in verse 2 of chapter 12. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Passover becomes the first month of the year. The calendar of the Hebrews is changed to accommodate the moment of Passover in their annual calendar, so that Passover month is now the first month of the year. Why is that, and where is it leading us? Well, the answer why is pretty obvious. They're going to start their year with the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They commence their year with the remembrance of God's great act of deliverance in their lives. They started every year with two feasts, which would remind them of the work God had done on their behalf in the Exodus and bringing them out of Egypt. It was a peculiar remembrance. They started their their year not with New Year's resolutions, but looking back each year after year after year, on the mighty act, in fact, the mighty act of old covenant deliverance and salvation. I want to say to you, friends, we have something very similar. We have something very, very similar to this arrangement here, and it's not Christmas, and it's not Easter. It's the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is our peculiar remembrance of the mighty act of salvation in Christ Jesus done for us on our behalf. Remember this, the Lord's Day, the holy day of God's people, changed. Our calendar has changed in like manner to theirs. The day of worship is now the Lord's Day, not the Saturday as it was, the Sabbath, not the the, the sixth day, but the first day of the week. In recognition of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our calendar has changed. And God doesn't say to us, come once a year to this great remembrance of resurrection life that you have. He says, come every week. Start every week with a remembrance of God's goodness to you. 
to us. This is staggering. That God should call us into his house every Lord's Day and say, remember the great act of deliverance from sin that I have wrought for you. Oh, on this day we observe, friends, that Christ was raised from the dead, the new covenant Sabbath. And in that resurrection we were delivered from sin. And we can enter his presence with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise every seven days. A remembrance today, friend, that if you're a Christian, you have been delivered from sin and death and hell. Praise the Lord for the Sabbath, for the Lord's Day. The second thing to note about Passover is that Passover involves quite intimately sacrifice. Verses 3 to 6 speak to us of the sacrifice. Uh, A sheep uh, or a goat, a lamb, without blemish shall be taken and sacrificed. Verses 7 following speak about the manner in which it should be prepared, killed, and eaten. Gehardus Vos has two very important observations about this sacrifice moment in Passover. The first is this. He says, peace with God and the grace of deliverance can happen no other way than through sacrifice. Peace with God and the grace of deliverance can happen no other way than through sacrifice. And Linked to that, he examines the nature of the sacrifice. And he says, because the sacrifice is both killed and eaten by those who kill it, that puts the sacrifice in line, Leviticus chapter 3, with the peace offering of Israel. The peace offering and the legislation, they were to kill the offering and then they would eat part of it to symbolize that peace has been made between God and and the one sacrificing. It's not just like the burnt offering where it's all burnt up and there's no profit from it whatsoever, with the exception of sins forgiven. There's there's no fellowship restored in it. But the peace offering is about the restoration of fellowship and intimacy through bloodshed. Really very important. It speaks then first to God's desire to be at peace and have fellowship with his people through, secondly, atonement of sin. Have we not seen this all the way through, throughout what Moses has said to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they might serve me. Serve me. And that service is not cold and clinical and distant. It's communion. It's fellowship. It's God saying, I am your God, you are my people, enjoy me, walk before me and be blameless, and I will open the heavens and pour out blessing on you. The reestablishment of peace and fellowship. Yes, how? Through sacrifice, through the atonement of sins. And yet if we were to fast forward into Leviticus, the early chapters of Leviticus, we'd see that the peace offering is just one of many offerings and sacrifices. Yes, there was the peace offering. 
There was the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. All different sacrifices designed to teach the Israelites something different about the need for salvation, the need for atonement. And together, all of them, looking forward to the Christ, all of them, not just one of them, but all of them, along with all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament, all the cleansings, all the rituals, the washings, all of them provided for a relationship with God. All of these things, a mass of legislation, a multitude of sacrifices. It took all these sacrifices, all these laws, for the old covenant Hebrew to be right with God, but it just takes one man and his perfect work now to be right with God, the God-man Jesus Christ. In Christ, one person. In Christ, one sacrifice. In Christ, one perfection, which is manifold. In Christ, one cleansing. In Christ, one fellowship. In him alone, that by faith in him, all this Passover, all the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all the ceremonies and the sacrifices are fulfilled and gone because we have the reality in Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is for us to live in the new covenant. We have our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He is unto us righteousness, holiness, wisdom from God. He is our cleansing. He is our rest. He is our satisfaction. He's our expiation. He propitiates God. In him we have fellowship. Friends, if you're struggling in your Christian life tonight, there is no lack in Jesus Christ. Not a single weak link in his work. And his work was done once, never to be repeated, so that our consciences might be cleansed from sin permanently, forever. Friends, whatever you truly need in this life, not what you want, but whatever you truly need in this life, will be found in no one else and nowhere else other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. And that's why in verse 14, the third thing about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're told this is a memorial. A memorial. It was a time of twin feasts, Passover and, uh, I think, ten days later, Unleavened Bread. It was a time of feasting, a time for families to be together to celebrate these realities, a time of instructing children, 1226, When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And it was a time of worship. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. A worshipful memorial in the life of people, God's people. Friends, what's our memorial feast? We did it this morning. 
our worshipful, memorial, familial feast. We celebrated it this morning, the Lord's Supper. A word of caution, we don't simply equate the Lord's Supper with the Passover. It's not what Scripture wants us to do. There are connections, most certainly, but there were many feasts in the Old Covenant, not least the covenant feast of Exodus 24. The Lord's Supper, friends, summarizes and fulfills all those feasts, not just one of them. The Lord's Supper is the summation of all the feasts of the Old Covenant. That's why the Lord's Supper is better than all those feasts of the Old Covenant. My point is this, friends. God has given us a supper in which there should be great celebration because we're remembering the perfect, finished, complete, atoning work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we come to the supper, friends, it should be a moment, if I can put it this way, of sober rejoicing. I know that sounds like a paradox. It is, isn't it? Sober rejoicing. Sobriety, because it took the death of our Lord, which is symbolized in the supper. But what did that achieve? Forgiveness of sins. Hell subdued. Peace with heaven. A true remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what are you thinking when you come up and receive and go back to your seats and we we eat and drink together? What are you thinking? You should leave spiritually refreshed, spiritually enlivened. Not because you like or dislike the man who's administering it, but because Christ is feeding you with himself at that very moment. Or you're called to look well beyond the people who stand up here in the feast. You're called to look up and see God's grace being poured out on you in that very moment. That God has opened the heavens, the halls of heaven, and has showered down grace and mercy and peace upon those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Rejoice! Be of good cheer! It's a remembrance that your sins have been forgiven, removed. That's God's purpose in the supper. We celebrate that Christ has died for us. For Israel, Passover and unleavened bread was, as it were, a yearly pilgrimage to the shores of the Red Sea to remember God's deliverance of them. For us, it's a weekly or every two weeks, a pilgrimage to the house of God where we enjoy the God of our salvation. The grace of God is just poured out upon us. It's there in everything we do, friends. From the moment we're called into worship by the word of God, think on that. Billions of people this night have not been called into worship. You have. Praise the Lord. To the prayers we offer, the psalms we sing. Yes, we sing them to God, but are we not blessed in singing? Oh, we are. We confessed our faith tonight about the grace of God in the second covenant. We've had scripture read. We've prayed. We're going to sing. The word is preached. What more can we need? 
If we only have eyes to see what's going on at this very moment now. God is saying, I saved you, I delivered you, and I will perfect you. I will do it. That's why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. We've got that weekly celebration of God's goodness unto us. That's how we should be perceiving worship. It should be more dear to us than anything else in life. Because here, friend, you hear this. You hear God saying to you, I have a deep interest in you. Not just you plural, but you singular. Each Christian sat in every row. God says, I have a deep interest in you. So deep, in fact, it goes back to before the world was created in the decree of election. So deep is that interest in you. I sent my son to live and die and be raised for you. What a staggering interest that is. We read this, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Well, we can bow our heads and we can lift our heads as we approach the throne of grace with boldness. Worship. Worship for those who were spared. Worship for those uh, who were granted a deliverance. But not everyone in Egypt was granted that deliverance because death was most assuredly enacted that night it's our third consideration death enacted chapter 12 29 if any of you are familiar with the history of wales and perhaps some of you have seen the uh, netflix show the crown it comes with a health warning but you will have seen in that a depiction of the abba van disaster in South Wales. At 9.13 a.m. on the 21st of October 1966, a mountainside of coal dust, industrial debris collapsed and came rushing down the side of the mountain in a river of slurry. 150,000 tons of mud and coal dust and slurry went straight through Pantglass Junior School, burying it, killing 116 children and 28 adults. The Abavan disaster has left a physical scar on the landscape of that town. To this day, you can see where the buildings stop after that slurry landslide went through the town. But the physical marks on the town are nothing compared to the emotional marks left on the town of Abavan. The scarring is still there to this day. You can speak to the survivors. It's a day that's gone down in the history of Wales, even the history of Great Britain. But friends, we would have to say, and I don't mean this flippantly, It was only 116 children and 28 adults. I'm not saying that to minimize the event. 
grievous, but very localized. Appalling, but friends, nothing compared to the scale of what the Lord did on this night in Egypt. 1229, at midnight, the Lord struck down. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. To the firstborn of the captive who was born in the dungeon. And the firstborn of the livestock. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt died that night midnight the Lord rained down death and terror on Egypt without discrimination amongst the Egyptians from Pharaoh's palace to the dungeon To the animals in the field, he killed the firstborn. We've got plenty of firstborns in this room today. If you were in Egypt on that night, you'd be dead. Your brothers and sisters and families left behind. You'd be dead. It's hard to imagine the response, though we don't need to imagine it. We're told a great cry went up in Egypt on that night. For every home not covered by the blood of the Lamb came death and devastation. Verse 30, not a house, there was not a house where someone was not dead. Yet, not a dog growled against the Israelites. It's quite clear, friends, this is not some natural disaster. Not some fluke or occurrence to be proven or disproven by archaeologists. This is of God. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn. Did you notice that? Lord, capitalized, the proper name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant God who promised, as we confessed earlier, life and redemption and a mediator in the second covenant. That God, that God who made promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and has made promises and has kept them until this day, that God rained down death on Egypt. The God who made promises to deliver his covenant people made war against Egypt and those who had harmed the covenant people. You might think, but how could God do this? How could God rain down this death judgment on all those innocent children? Easy answer, they're not innocent. They're just not innocent. 
Because there's not one who has ever lived save our Savior who is actually innocent. All were guilty of sin. Of imputed sin and of actual sin. All were guilty of denying God. And all represented in and by Pharaoh who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is God's terrible righteousness revealed against all ungodliness. God's terrible justice revealed against all ungodliness. The death of the firstborn here reminds us, friends, that God is too holy than to look upon sin. The death of the firstborn here reminds us that God will not allow his people to be downtrodden. The death of the firstborn reminds us God will avenge his people and deliver them. And the death of the firstborn reminds us that God will bring justice to the wicked. Until that is, he brought justice to the innocent. His firstborn, Jesus Christ so that his chosen people might not receive justice. Is it not a great irony, friends, that mercy comes to earth, us by the death of the firstborn, the one of whom God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We can put it like this, friends. God, in his anger, poured out all the plagues of the old covenant, including the plague of death upon his son, undeserving though he was. Yet he willingly took those plagues. He willingly took death upon himself that we might be spared. John Piper puts it this way. God did not ordain the cross of Christ or create the lake of fire in order to communicate the insignificance of belittling his glory. The death of the Son of God and the damnation of unrepentant human beings are the loudest shouts under heaven that God is infinitely holy and sin is infinitely offensive and wrath is infinitely just and that grace is infinitely precious. Friends, when we read the death of the firstborn, yes, we see God's hatred of sin. But friends, when we look at the cross, not only do we see God's hatred of sin, but he sees, we see his love for sinners. We see his great and everlasting love. We see his insurmountable mercy. And we see amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, we are undone. We are humbled. No good thing resides within us, save that you put it there. And yet we are recipients of this amazing grace. How blessed are you, our great and our glorious God. May this night be a night of enjoyment of your grace in our lives. Take our worship this morning.
Take the supper in which we partook of our Savior spiritually. Take our worship, Lord God, this night. Imprint upon our hearts the joy and gladness of belonging unto you by faith in Christ. Encourage the downtrodden, Lord God. Lift up the faint-hearted with this good news. Rebuke the proud. Strengthen us all, we plead with you, Lord God. For you have redeemed us from sin and hell. You are our Father who loves us, and we love you. Have mercy upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.